Welcome to the Canon Care Podcast, brought to you by M3. I'm Sarah Kukula, Director of Senior Living and Social Services at M3. And I'm Marlia Coiler-Grayhek, Risk Manager at M3. Each episode of the Candid Care Podcast promises to challenge your current thinking about the long-term care industry and introduce concepts to improve your organization and advance the field. From executive risks to key strategies, we'll approach each topic from multiple angles and invite leaders with unique perspectives to join in the conversation. Please be advised this podcast and the recommendations throughout are not intended as legal advice and should not be used as or relied upon as legal advice. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Canon Care Podcast. Today we have with us two provider guests, Crystal Miller, CEO of Frontita Assisted Living, and Emily Feiner, now cook I should say, Vice President of Quality and Risk Management with Illuminous. So Crystal and Emily, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Thanks for having, having me. M3, our Senior Living and Social Services Group, recently had our annual defense symposium in which we heard from defense attorneys, providers, insurance carriers, on the state of the market, if you will, in terms of liability claims in the senior living and social services space. We heard the provider perspective of a claim and the various dynamics that contributed to the outcome. The defense attorneys gave us the 411 on current trends in litigation and top causes of loss. And we also ventured into the topic of ESG, environmental, social, and governance, and how organizations can harness that to their advantage in their overall strategy of litigation management. So we're going to dive into each of those sessions with our key takeaways from our provider perspective. So let's start with session one, which was our claim deep dive into the provider perspective there, as well as our defense attorneys. So Crystal, I'll start with you. What were some of the things that really stuck out to you with this session? First of all, thank you to M3 for having this event. It was really helpful to just get our head back in the space of the significant risk that we face every day and how we can do many small things to really mitigate that as we do the important work of caring for others. So I appreciated the perspectives of a claim because honestly, and I think anybody that was there could attest to this, you look around the room, you look at yourself and think this could happen to any of us. Mm-hmm. Well, you're there in the room because we care <laughs> and it could have happened to any of us and little things in it could be easily prevented. And so as we were able to go through those case studies, it was so helpful just to have honestly nothing like it wasn't new information. It was just really good reminders. I think that was really key. I appreciated that there was a provider that showed um, some of what happened to her and what happened in on their team and things that she learned from it and ways that it was presented even maybe uh, different than um, they wish it had been. But man, it was really good to see that and to be reminded. Yeah, absolutely. And if I may add in as well, some of the nuggets like Crystal mentioned are things that we do day in and day out, but the reminders of how important they can be from a defense attorney's perspective. A couple of the small items that I took away Resetting family expectations and working through some of those grievance processes and really being very thoughtful to having those conversations in a safe space, perhaps before the situation becomes elevated to a potential 
claim can be really important and not always easy to do, but can be really helpful in the long run. One other area that we talked a lot about was just simply documentation audits and being thoughtful in maybe was there an area or two that we missed and those small areas to catch up with documentation can be really critical for a defense attorney to have some of those variables in their pocket, uh, especially on these scenarios, they settled at mediation, but if um, something were to go to jury trial, those elements can be so important. It's that age-old comment of if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. And like Crystal, you said, we all know this already, but it I would say documentation in general, that is something that is so common in issues when we come into these claim scenarios. And I think something important too that was brought up is being more mindful of that when there's leadership turnover, whether that's a supervisor, a nursing leader, whoever's in charge of monitoring that documentation. What are we doing in the interim while there's turnover? Someone new is being trained to keep an eye on that because that's an easy place where that can fall through the cracks. Absolutely. It was interesting remembering about arbitration and mediation and kind of uh, that mediation is something that can come much earlier in your in your, in your opportunity and how good that can be. It was also interesting to be reminded of some simple things like there had been some work done in ISPs and with assessments or lack of, and it's stuff that could easily happen. But just to remember to be so careful in that, it was very interesting. I'm not a clinician, but to hear him say there is no low risk for falls. That, that's not a thing. There isn't everyone has a risk for fall, even us. As I sit here, I'm almost 50 years old, and yesterday and tomorrow, I'm, I'm at a risk for a fall. And I just hadn't really thought of it that way before. And like I said, I'm not a clinician, but I'm certainly in a place where I can see maybe a 10,000-foot view of stuff that's happening in our communities. Those a reassessment when there's a change of condition and how important that is, it was such a good reminder. Absolutely. I think that the training piece is so valuable just to remind each of us all the time, the training that needs to go into these caregivers that most of them really, truly care, yet they need the tools to do their job. And you mentioned already that turnover of leadership that happens all the time with us. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to just think, oh, I got it. But no, they need a lot of guidance and that will make a difference in this kind of thing. I think the other thing that was really key in both the case studies they shared where they were both families that the administrator knew there was probably going to be a challenge with them. And there are clues. There's clues on day one. There's clues on day 100. There's a clue on if you get to day 1,000, there's probably still clues. And I mm -hmm. think that happened in some of these situations where those families, they were going to cause a problem. And yes, documentation should happen all the time, everyone. And even more so when you have some of those clues straight in your face. <laughs> yep. And it's so easy to want to not deal with those challenging family members, but it's so much more proactive and will pay off in the long run to what was mentioned was embracing those challenging families mm -hmm. and how to stay in contact with them. And granted, you're probably never going to suffice them to all of their wishes, but how do you keep them at bay and keep them satisfied enough from wanting to pursue a claim in the long run? Yeah, they have to feel like you care. And that usually comes as a result of really strong communication. And it's usually a lot of work, but not nearly as much work as dealing with a claim. Yep, exactly. Investment in the short term to pay off in the long term. 
how interesting they took a moment in the case in the skilled nursing facility and to hear that the plaintiff's attorneys are suggesting the family members call DHS or our state regulators and file a formal complaint through the state first. In this scenario, the provider did experience a complaint survey before the suit presented itself. And and that's just a reminder for us that important information that's protected. And as we have a DHS surveyor coming in and investigating the complaint, uh, what a curious strategy for our plaintiff's attorneys to advise their clients um, before a suit is even nearing close. So it's a reminder to us as providers, if a complaint survey is in place, there may be more to that story and um, a good opportunity for us to do a really thoughtful job on the investigation and work on the front end um, before that dotted line um, becomes more final with a potential lawsuit. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Was, that was very eye-opening to think that those plaintiff attorneys are having the state do a lot of their investigative work for them. Mm-hmm. They've all seen some of those surveys, and I think that the appeal process is valuable because you can dispute some things before they become black and white, or in, in that process, you can dispute them, and even afterwards, you can appeal them. And I don't think I've ever taken that as seriously as I do now as I see some of those tactics. Because that appeal process, sometimes you think there's some truth here. It's too much work to fight it. Actually, we really want to get our documentation out there in the reality of the public record. Yep. You want to make that claim publicly that you don't agree with what the surveyor is saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is all wonderful feedback and some great takeaways for you guys as providers as well as our listeners. So thank you. So should we move on to our next session, which was trends in litigation in which we had defense attorneys speak about arbitration agreements, third-party investigations, some information in regards to some new findings with fraudulent representation and marketing materials, which was super interesting. So I'll let you guys take it away. One of the areas that you didn't mention regarding um, DSPS licensure complaints has been very noticeable with our provider group and something that was interesting to glean into those trends that they were presenting. Interesting to hear how some licensing boards protect their own, so to speak, and other licensing boards are a bit more critical and really noticing trends elevating. We've experienced that walk between DSPS, licensure complaints, and DHS uh, complaints on behalf of the entity's licensure. I think just being thoughtful about what you as an employer are doing to protect those individuals' licensures who are working in your buildings and um, how can we be thoughtful when working with DSPS to tell that full story and what that investigation means. Along those lines, Emily, I think it's good to know you as the organization or that person whose license is getting questioned just so they feel a bit more supportive. A lot of insurance policies do have some capacity to provide support, some attorney support for responses to those DSPS complaints. So don't feel like you have to go about them yourself. Make sure to check with um, your broker as well as your insurance carrier. We can help you through that process in terms of supporting our response. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it was interesting to learn about the statute 100.18, that fraudulent representation that you alluded to. It's interesting because we're going through a website refresh right now. And some of the language, when we looked at it, we asked ourselves more questions. Like, is this implying that we are promising in 24-hour 
supervision. We are 24 hour supervised, but is it implying one on one or is it implying that there's a. So that was very interesting to think about that because I didn't realize that was such a hot button for plaintiff attorneys to look for that even on websites and go find someone who wants to use it as a potential claim. So the promises we make, promises, quote unquote, we need to be really careful of. And I thought that was something that we immediately are implementing in the way that we're thinking about the way we talk about ourselves. Yeah, you really want to avoid those absolute statements such as we provide the highest quality of care or experienced staff or fully trained staff, really being careful with some of that language that we're using so it can't be used against us. Yeah, and it seems like there's probably some gray areas that could be used no matter what. We've said a long time we're assisted living you can trust. I still believe that and I don't think it's overreaching. Someone probably could say it's overreaching. <laughs> So that, there's some confusion there, but I think the awareness of it is just so valuable. So it was great to have that as a reminder. Emily, that's something that you mentioned too during chatting in between sessions. That's something that stuck out to you was that marketing component too. Absolutely. Yeah. And just to use that lens as a filter when you're reading through some of, even on social media or printed postings, things like that, how could that information or those words be perceived in the wrong way. Yeah. Regarding the third party investigation, first of all, there's a whole side of criminal law that I didn't even know would touch our provider group. And of course it does, unfortunately. How interesting to learn about developing a plan when 911 is called in our building. Thinking about a CBRF after hours, maybe an incident or a sentinel event occurs in one of our buildings caregiver calls 911, uh, perhaps there's no administrator or registered or, or licensed nurse in the building. Thinking about friendly reminders when the police arrive on site, the likelihood that they have a body cam on and recording and where that evidence may go. Thinking about who's answering the door when the police officer arrives, what sort of things they're saying to the officer. And just reminding ourselves that all of that may come back around someday. And I'm sure I can speak to it myself as well. Sometimes in a Sentinel event, you say things that perhaps may be true or you may feel some fear in the moment. And just really being thoughtful about how are we educating our staff when the police come on site, who is working with the police through the investigation, how can we be thoughtful on how that plays out? Yeah, it was a bit heartbreaking to hear some of those examples. True accidents that happened and then things that were said that cast so much doubt on people who have good hearts and are there with good intention. And then just a can of worms, for lack of a better term, that gets opened up. And also, I know one of them was an example of a four bed and, and how those other residents they sometimes you have someone to enter the door, you can't tell they're arrested or caregiver. That really is the case. I used to operate a small 16 bed, and you can just see some of those things happening that are wildly out of your control. But training makes a difference, and like you said, Emily, having a plan that everyone knows beforehand, yeah. The other thing that stuck out to me, too, was if the law enforcement is opening in a formal investigation, do consider getting defense counsel involved at that point as an early intervention strategy to help lead through that investigation process. 
and that it's okay to not release info until you do speak to an attorney. And you can really, if it does become a claim down the line, you have this attorney-client privilege from the get-go, essentially, that could help you throughout that claim process. Yeah. It was good for me to hear from Pat Sullivan a reminder the defense attorney and their team are on our side as providers and the importance of our cooperation and collaboration with them. You know, he mentioned he understands how sometimes our records are buried boxes deep in a storage closet or they're in an electronic medical record that went through a change of ownership and we maybe don't have access to or other reasons why we have delays in our response to the defense attorney. She mentioned several times litigation these days is the cost of doing business. And we have to remind ourselves that the defense attorney team is there to support us. And we need to be available and on the spot with getting information to them. And I think it's just a good gentle reminder that pushing things under the rug or ignoring a request may make things worse in the long run. So just a thoughtful consideration to having a plan for that collaboration as well. Yep. They're on your side. They're going to help you. Yeah, that's very good insight. I noticed more than one time from all these renews that were there that they personalized themselves as part of the team. They said, we, this has happened to us. And I felt that was, it was like a silent reminder that they're on our team. But for people that are listening to this, that are fearful of a process, Emily, that's really good advice. Don't wait. Just don't wait to get help and to see them. I think we often can see attorneys as like doctors, like larger than life, and they're not. They're just like us. (laughs) And they are here to help us and they have a job to do. And I think we need to see them that way. But I was encouraged by just the terminology they were using as they were talking about the way these things played out. It was good. I think my final takeaway from their session was just in regards to arbitration agreements and some providers have them, some don't. They can be a really great litigation management tool, but there's a but, right? You have to see it as an investment from start to finish. You need to have a professional who's experienced with arbitration agreements, drafting your agreements and how to incorporate that with your admissions process, educating employees who go through the agreement with residents and families and are we monitoring the acceptance rates and evaluating our practices? So it's not just a, I'm going to put this a part of my admission agreement and call it a day. It, there's a lot more to it than that. But when you do it, it can be very beneficial for you. Yeah. I think Amy was the individual who mentioned a couple questions that she's experienced before with arbitration agreements. Questions like, How long did you train the individual who was delivering the arbitration agreements to the resident or their power attorney? Yeah. How long did it take to get through it? Those kind of things. To hone in is, did they understand what they were signing? And to be honest, I've wanted to get through those quickly because as a person on the other side, you don't really want a lot of questions about it. And and that's wrong. It's wrong, but that's not the purpose of it. So I could feel that like, (laughs) oh, it feels I remember so we do need to invest time in the training and for people, our people to be, feel confident and using that as a tool that is a win-win all the way around. Exactly. All right, let's move on to our top causes of loss session. So we talked about falls, pressure injuries, elopements, choking, the top four areas of what we're seeing 
as leaders in our claims these days. So what were some of the things that really stuck out to you guys in this session? Training, making sure that expectations are clear on every level of our team, from, from the top all the way to the person providing that frontline work. I just don't think we can limit the importance of training. Of course, documentation too, but every single of these top four, it goes back to understanding what we do and how we should be doing it. Regarding the pre-admission assessment, how critical in our assisted livings that component is to have documented uh, risk, whether it's fall risk or risk for pressure injuries, to have that pre-assessment information done prior to admission can be so critical and maybe more so than having a discussion with the family that this individual is at risk for falls. They were falling at home. They will continue to fall here with us or other risk regarding elopement or other areas. And just being really thoughtful, that pre-admission conversation is really realistic. Uh, and Crystal said, document it. Yeah. And it is amazing how many people think that their loved one won't fall if they're in assisted living. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation last week with the family. He said, I'm just really worried that she might fall. And I said, she probably will fall. Mm-hmm. And I will be there for her. And we will, we will take some of the risk away by making sure her room is set up well and all the things. But I want you to know she probably will fall, but we'll be there to take care of her instead of you having to wonder how you're going to get her up off the floor. And that goes back to our earlier discussion, too, of how do we maybe incorporate some of that in the admission agreement of from the supervision piece. We don't provide 24-7 one-on-one supervision, aka your loved one might fall. So it goes back to not only having those discussions, but also how do we maybe incorporate that from a contract perspective too? Yeah. Yeah. I think another thing that stuck out to me and particularly with pressure injuries, know the limits of your care setting. If you are going to be taking care of some of these things, it's not just wounds or pressure injuries, but the levels of care that you do provide, ensuring that your staff is competent and trained in those particular areas and that you have policies and procedures to appropriately care for and manage those things. Because it's great to say, oh, yeah, we care for all of these different types of needs, but do you have the processes and people and documentation to back that up? Yeah, a really fruitful discussion on that one, too, regarding maybe in the assisted setting. When an individual's acuity changes, pressure injuries or other areas that they're outside of the scope of care. And perhaps we had some providers mentioning issuing a 30-day notice to find a higher level of care. And what are some strategies when that person cannot find alternate placement and you are still being held responsible to care for that pressure injury, no matter what the stage is, even if they are outside of your scope and what creative strategies can we come up with to find ways to care for that person successfully in the meantime? It was good reminders. And also some of the things are difficult to have answers to, but just we need to be thinking of them and documenting all the things that we are doing because that's been a significant concern is offering 30-day notices and Nothing happens. And I think it's good for us as providers to have a place to talk about that so that we can be as prepared as possible for the things that come down the road as a result of it. Yeah. And utilizing those negotiated risk agreements too, to our benefit, obviously, those aren't the silver bullet, but at least it's documentation that we had discussions and educated residents and their families about the risk. They're aware of the potential consequences and that can help us too moving forward if there is a claim. 
Yeah. One of the areas that was discussed as a top cause in loss, surprising to me and sad for all of us, is assault and battery. And at times, it's easy for us as providers to say, I don't know what I can do to prevent that. We have a good background check process. We have um, X, Y, Z. How interesting to hear about um, the relation to staff fatigue and staff burnout. And I felt that to be really empowering that we do have some tools in our tool belt when thinking about that potential for assault or battery. When caregivers have been through a challenging three or four or 10 years with us and what can we do as a provider to address fatigue and burnout and being thoughtful and something as simple as staff assignment, maybe filtering back and forth between a memory care setting and in and out just to address some of that potential fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's a very insightful thought. All right. So let's move on to our final session, which was ESG, which seemed to throw a lot of people for a loop. But I think after we went through and talked about everything and really related this back to how this does affect your overall brand in the community and how the community and stakeholders view you as an organization, how that really can come into play when it comes to when it comes to claim situations. So very curious on both of your thoughts on that session. It was new thinking that it would be related to litigation. It was something we've thought about recently. We've had lots of buzz about it with webinars that have been available to us, that type of thing, and thoughts regarding how it will help us strengthen our workforce, our recruitment, retention, and the way that, yeah, the world views us. But I never really thought about how the way the world views us makes a difference when you get to a place where potentially it's 12 jurors that are mm-hmm. in the community looking at you and saying, I know that company does this and this, or I know they don't do this and this. I, not that's right necessarily. I think that the laws should be clear and it shouldn't be the way people feel about you. But the reality is it, it does make a difference. And there's things in ESG that aren't just the way people feel. It's just the reality about the way that we are doing business to protect ourselves in a lot of ways. I think the takeaway for me was we can't develop something that we are not willing or able to invest in and actually do. (laughs) I think the buzzwords around ESG, it's easy to write a policy. Actually, I hate to admit this, but my husband helps. We work together in the business and I said, I need a policy. And AI gave me one in about four minutes. And I, and I said, I don't, we're not doing all of this. I can't get a policy. <laughs> but it was very good to do some things we can aspire to. And so we're working on it. We are working on it. And it was really encouraging to be able to hear that perspective because it gave it a lot more weight in the big picture of what it means for us. I think the greatest takeaway for me was it has to be authentic. Being really cautious to not over embellish our strategy to a point where people can read through it a bit. And if it comes to a jury trial, that's, of course, important. Jurors are not um, blind to seeing through some of that, Uh, not to mention the plaintiff attorney will probably tear it apart. But um, more importantly, perhaps your employees can tell if it's not authentic as well. And um, then it will become the flavor of the day or she's now she's on this one (laughs) and so just being really thoughtful the the provider panel that we had was so thoughtful in not biting off more than they can chew 
taking the areas and absorbing them into their culture as it made sense. We say often building the plane as it's taking off, right? And the provider recognized they weren't experts, but just staying true to being authentic and learning a lot as they go. This is very interesting to hear about. I, I think our organization looks forward to our growth and expansion there too. Being really thoughtful while we're doing that process. I agree. I think one of the things that can be a barrier is it feels really big. So we stop and we're like, okay, we'll get to it. But it just feels so big. And what I appreciated about the panel was the one concept that came out loud and clear is start who you are, start with what you have. And so we came home that very day and started talking about some ways that we could implement some small changes that could have big impacts and to be at least on a road where we can have something to talk about and, and see progress. Yeah. The nature of our businesses of what you guys do as providers, there's tons of ESG components already in there. And obviously you're doing a wonderful service for the community. And it's how you wrap your arms around that and communicate that with the stakeholders. Yeah. It was nice to be encouraged in it. That's what it felt like. It felt like encouragement. Some of the other things almost felt like maybe <laughs> we're getting beat on the head. No, I'm just saying not really. No, I get it. I get it. How your perspective is. But that session on ESG was, it felt very encouraging. And I'm really thankful that M3 thought of that bigger picture to bring it to us. So it's great. Yeah. What a, a creative way to find its topic into the defense symposium. Like Crystal said, I never would have expected to see that on the agenda or how does that dot tie back into our defense. But how interesting that the paths do align. And nonetheless, defense aside, it's just the right thing for us to do. Yes. Crystal, Emily, any final comments or anything you want to share with our audience? I think M3, tremendously, we had a new venue this year, which was exciting for us. I know previous years occasionally would have a cap on participants just because of size limitations. So we had a couple of new members from our organization join this year that were excited. It is, I know Sarah mentions it's her favorite day of the year, and it is highly regarded amongst our organization as well. Just a, a ton to learn every year. And really enjoy the opportunity to join a network. Yeah, I agree with Emily. I just thank M3 for being such a supportive partner to us. And I guess I'm just really grateful for that. You're definitely more than provider of our insurance, but partner with us in the way that we think and the way we do business and the way we support our industry. So we appreciate all that you guys do. We're here to serve and we love helping. So thank you both so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. And we look forward to continuing to on all these projects in the future. That's great. Thank you very much, Marilia. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Candid Care Podcast brought to you by M3. Connect with us at m3ins.com for access to more resources, insight, and to join the conversation. 